Here we are again. Halloween is upon us once more, but tonight I want to tear your attention away from the fairy forts and the lonely boreens of the countryside to four true tales of a haunted city. Tell me, how well do you know Dublin? I don't mean the sullen grandeur of its wide grey streets, I mean the dark and scurrilous whispers of its history. The tall tales and the small tragedies that lie thick on the city like layers of dust. Of course Dublin, great and small, had no better chronicler than James Joyce. And before we plunge into the city's dark corners, I want to tell you a story about a very strange conversation with Joyce himself. A conversation that took place almost 30 years after his death. On the 13th of January 1970, 29 years to the day since Joyce's death, two Dublin men, a Kerry man, a Waterford man and an Englishman, walked into a Dublin reading room well after midnight. They put a single glass on the round table. Sounds like the setup to a joke, but if so, it was a joke that was about to turn very, very dark. In fact, to call these students men was something of a stretch. They were each 18 years old, in their final year at a Dublin boarding school, and all ardent admirers and scholars of Joyce's work. But tonight, their aim was to commune not just with Joyce's works, but with his very soul. The five settled nervously around the reading room table. They placed slips of paper with the letters of the alphabet around its edges and they put the glass tumbler in the middle. The students then placed a finger each on the rim of the glass and waited to feel it move, to feel it channel the spirit of their idol. Occasionally they chanted his name. Joyce. 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 The dull tick of the reading room clock pushed the night along from 2am to half past from half past to 3am, from 3am to half past 3. The young acolytes sat in perfect silence, except for the occasional mesmerising repetition of their master's name. Joyce. 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 The weary students jolted to life as the glass suddenly lurched towards the Englishman, St. John. Tentatively, with whispered encouragement from his friends, he stammered out a question. Where are you? 
For some moments the glass remained stubbornly still beneath the five students' fingers. And then it began to move, to shuttle its way swiftly, almost manically, around the table, spelling out the words, I can not see God. For a minute or two, no one said a word. Then, Sinjin plucked up the courage to ask another question. What have you to say to us? Within seconds, the glass was in motion again, scraping across the table to spell out the message. Say nothing of this to anyone. Again, silence fell over the reading room. A silence broken by the glass, moving again, this time unprompted by any question. I like you. Sinjin's bewildered friends silently urged him to ask another question, but as he opened his mouth to speak, something happened that would haunt the students for decades. The glass began to rise under its own power, slipping free of their fingers as it climbed until it was levitating a foot and a half above the table. And then it dropped. Suddenly, without warning, it fell to the table and rolled onto the floor without a chip or a crack appearing on its surface. After replacing the miraculously unharmed glass, the five students sat up for another hour, but whatever had visited them that night was long departed, or at least lurking silently. Around five o'clock, the shaken students decided to call it a night. For years afterwards, the students tried to make sense of their experiences that night by asking one another who had really pushed the glass? Who had really made it levitate? How was the trick done? But in all the years that followed, as they grew to responsible men with very respectable careers, none of them ever owned up to having done it. And each of the men was left to wonder if, just maybe, they had touched the damned soul James Joyce himself. That story was one of many, many ghostly experiences submitted by readers of the Evening Herald's Ghosts column 
which ran for decades in the paper from the 1950s onwards, initially compiled by Aidan Pender, and then for many years by Patrick Byrne. It's a source we'll draw from throughout this journey. Our next story on this night is a slightly more recent tale. A tale of the inner city at a time when the demolition of its rotting Georgian houses was stirring up a bit more than dust and memories. It's January 1966. Things may be swinging over in London, but Dublin is bobbing at best. But change is afoot. Old Dublin, the half-medieval city of shambles and tenements, is disappearing rapidly. In Summer Hill on the north side of the city, a crew of six demolition men are tearing down number 118, an old Georgian dwelling typical of the period. Or at least, they were tearing it down. But work has stopped early on Friday morning, not due to weather conditions or an industrial dispute, but because all six of the men are now too terrified to enter the house. Three of the demolition crew, including William McGregor, a partner in the company, had witnessed things they couldn't explain within the crumbling walls of 118 Summer Hill. Now these were hardy, experienced and skilled workers doing a tough physical job, not the type to scare easily. But none of them had any doubt that what they'd seen in the skeleton of that house was not of this world. I saw the figure clearly, William McGregor told the Herald. He was a tall man who seemed to be wearing a striped shirt or overall without a collar. He just stood there looking at me. I blessed myself and then I must have passed out. McGregor wasn't the only one who witnessed the apparition. His employee, Joseph Byrne, was attempting to wrench an old stove from the basement when he felt a strange sensation of being watched. He looked around to reassure himself. Nothing there. But moments later, the feeling returned. And this time, when he turned around, I saw a man dressed in what appeared to be a butcher's striped jacket, standing, looking towards a window. I shouted to the others who were all working above me, but when they came down, they couldn't see it at all. But foreman Thomas Carney did see the figure, the exact same figure, described by McGregor and Byrne. A man in a striped garment with something, a napkin or a towel, wrapped around his neck. In the days after the sighting, the workers, and indeed their bosses, refused to set foot in the house except during daylight hours. Mr. McGregor himself said the only thing keeping his firm 
in 118 was the contract they'd signed to demolish it. Above all, the men would not, under any circumstances, venture into the basement, where a strange mural had been uncovered by the demolition work. The story featured on the front pages of the national newspapers and as word spread throughout the city, local youths embarked on their own impromptu ghost hunts. On the night of the first reports, a gang of teenagers laid siege to the house, brandishing a large improvised crucifix and daring the apparition to show itself, to come out for a straightener. It didn't. After the initial flurry of publicity, things died down for a time. That was until the building attracted the attention of a famed ghost hunter. In June of 1966, flanked by his wife, Countess Catherine Buxhoveden, and by the witch and psychic medium Sybil Leake, Hans Holzer stepped onto the tarmac at Dublin Airport. Now, just a few words of caution about Holzer. He was an Austrian-born paranormal investigator, a parapsychologist, to use his own phrase. The man who popularised the supposed Amityville hauntings. He later wrote up his paranormal experiences in Ireland as a book, The Lively Ghosts of Ireland, which adopts a pretty patronising tone towards Ireland and its people. While in Ireland, Holzer was always more at home amid the great manors and castles of the Ascendancy than slumming it in Summer Hill. Indeed, as he writes in the book, he felt the demolition of the Georgian buildings was no great tragedy, as the people who lived in them now were of a much lower class than those who originally built them. But whatever else you might say about him, Holzer had certainly done his homework. Or rather, he'd sent a baron to do it for him. In February of 1966, Holzer's friend Lord Dunalley had swept into Summerhill and quickly identified the ghost as that of a Patrick Conway, a butcher who cut his own throat in the house in 1863. That would certainly accord with the man in the striped butcher's apron who terrified the workers away from number 118. But the supposed record of Patrick Conway's death has never turned up in the Dublin City Archives. And we know that 116, 117 and 118 have been owned and occupied by the Hutton family, the last of Dublin's great coach-building families, since at least the 1820s. In 1923, the houses were sold to the Dublin United Tramways Company, who turned them into apartments. Interestingly, it seems that ghosts had been sighted in the houses before. Not in 118, but in 117. The sightings were so frequent that in the years after the Second World War, crowds would sometimes gather on the pavements opposite to catch a glimpse of the eerie shadows flitting by the upstairs windows. But 
117 had already been demolished by the time of the 1966 sightings. Had the ghostly butcher somehow risen from the wreckage to take up residence next door? That was Holzer's theory when he visited the site in July of 1966, with the Countess, the Psychic, RTE and the Irish Times all in tow. Alas, all Sybil Leake uncovered was a faint presence from the 17th century. No butchers, no bakers, no candlestick makers. Holzer left disappointed, and number 118 was finally pulled down, without any resolution to the mysteries that had haunted it. Today you'll find nothing on the site except a high wall and an ugly short-stay accommodation complex. But the older residents I spoke to who live in the houses opposite and who remember the ghost craze of the 1960s, they do insist that on still nights when the street is deserted and the roar of the traffic subsides for a moment, you can sometimes still hear the scrape of metal across the concrete. A noise that sounds a lot like someone dragging a butcher's cleaver across the pavements of Summer Hill. Four years after the events in Summer Hill, residents on the other side of the city began to experience strange and disturbing phenomena. Again, this was the kind of event that wouldn't have impressed Hans Holzer too much, since it took place in a block of flats in a, the working-class community of Rialto. But it did terrify the residents of 37 to 42. It baffled the police. It required the sort of intervention that would become the stuff of horror cinema just a few years later. Early October. 1970. The first whispers of winter carry the curling leaves through Rialto. But it's another sound that catches locals' attention. It begins as a light tapping, the sort of noise you might put down to faulty plumbing or heating pipes cranking to life again after an idle summer. That's how it begins, that's not where it ends. In fact, 19-year-old Joan Pitt has been hearing the noise for several months by this point, but her concerns are dismissed by her family. That is, until the tapping becomes a loud pounding, a pounding that resonates through the entire block and often keeps residents awake until 2 o'clock in the morning. The noise is so alarming and seems to be coming from so many different directions that residents call the guardie. But neither they nor Dublin Corporation can find any physical cause for the noise, which now alternates between sledgehammer-like thumps on the walls and ceilings and a sharper sound like the chopping of wood 
By the evening of Wednesday, October 7th, it's no longer just a disruptive noise. Religious pictures leap from the walls as the entire building seems to be vibrating violently, almost throwing residents out of their beds as though a, a localised earthquake had erupted beneath Dublin 8. But, once again, neither the corporation's engineering department, nor the guards, nor the fire brigade can find any structural explanation for these extraordinary events. This leaves residents with, as they see it, just one option. They call for Father Quinn. The very reverend Father Francis Quinn was a veteran of the cloth, a native of County Clare, ordained in 1933, but new to the parish of Our Lady of the Holy Rosary of Fatima. The official line of the church, then as now, was very much opposed to exorcism, except in the most extreme circumstances. But then, this wasn't a case of demonic possession. Somehow, Flats number 37 to 42 had been afflicted with a terror which had no physical or structural cause. Locals began to wonder if that light, innocuous tapping, the tapping that had been heard only by young Joan Pitt, had been a warning. A warning that they had failed to heed. And if, perhaps, Something was now making sure it was heard loud and clear. And so, on the mild October morning, Father Quinn finished Mass, had a quick gulp of tea, listened to the reports of Richard Nixon getting egged on Lord Edward Street, and then pulled on his coat and walked towards Rialto Buildings. He was met outside by a gaggle of anxious residents, who each shook his hand and wished him luck, clutching his rosary beads tight. Father Quinn walked through the eerily deserted block. At his request, every door in every flat yawned open before him. As the priest walked the empty block, room by room, sprinkling holy water and saying a decade of the rosary in each. More than once he must have questioned exactly what he was doing and how it would be received by the diocese when they read the reports in the next day's Evening Herald. But he finished the job, accepted the thanks of his parishioners and returned to his parochial house anxious, like everyone, to see what would happen next. What did happen next? Well, nothing. After Father Quinn's intervention, the noises and the shaking simply stopped. But now residents were more convinced than ever that their troubles were supernatural in origin. After all, 
What sort of engineering fault is solved by holy water? We haven't heard a thing since the parish priest blessed place, a beaming Edward Doyle, the oldest resident of the buildings, told the Herald. It's all over, he declared with obvious relief and delight. And so it seems to have been. No more is heard from the spectre of the Rialto flats. Today the Lewis jangles past the place where for a few short weeks in October of 1970, ordinary people lived in terror of the bumps in the night. Now, time for one last eerie tale of Dublin's past, this Halloween. This one is slightly more rarefied from a, a class of society that would have impressed even Hans Holzer. And if the ghost is not the most terrifying in the annals of the city, then it's surely the most talkative. Now this tale is taken from the book True Irish Ghost Stories, compiled in 1914 by Sinjin D. Seymour and his friend Harry L. Nelligan also known as District Inspector Henry Lancelot Nelligan of the Royal Irish Constabulary. These two men were pillars of the establishment. Seymour, in fact, was an Anglican priest and quite a senior one, ultimately an archdeacon. Like many Anglican clerics of his time, he had an active interest in the occult and the supernatural. He wrote several books on the subject, including one on Irish witchcraft and demonology. So these were no fly-by-night armchair ghost hunters. The book was largely compiled from responses to Seymour's appeals in the newspapers for stories of family and ancestral ghosts, haunted localities, spectral black dogs, poltergeists, and appearances of the devil, with a touching Victorian sense of trust in fair play. He also earnestly requested readers not to send any faked stories, as it will be impossible for me to test the accuracy and genuineness of all the tales I hope to get. So, make of that what you will. But this story came, we're assured, from a lady of impeccable breeding, and it concerns a tale told to her by the mother of her children's governess, also a lady of impeccable breeding. Seymour believes it absolutely and invites us to do the same. For my own part, I must say that this is one of the strangest ghost stories I've ever come across and it concerns the extraordinary goings-on at the home of a well-to-do family in a fashionable part of Dublin during the last years of the Victorian period. All we're told about the family surname is that it begins with A, so we'll refer to them as the Armstrongs. It began, as so many ghost stories do, with strange noises in the night, bumps and thumps in the lobby, 
while everyone was tucked up in bed. But this was no slow-burning tale of dread. The ghost would waste no time in making itself known. The family came to know the ghost as Corny. Why Corny? Well, because that's what he called himself. You see, Corny didn't communicate through raps and taps and Ouija boards. His voice, which was described as sounding as though it came through an empty barrel, was heard loud and clear, coming from the coal cellar beneath the kitchen. Corny would constantly interject in conversations. He would freely engage in dialogue with the family and their servants. The servants slept in the kitchen and were naturally terrified of sharing their sleeping quarters with a ghost. So much so that the Armstrongs eventually agreed to move their press bed upstairs, turning the order of the Victorian household on its head, only for Corny to materialise there too. He scoffed at the servants and told them that, while he might live in the kitchen, he had the run of the house. Corny was, in general, more of a nuisance than a threat, although of the two people who saw him manifest physically, one is said to have died of fright. The other, Mr. Armstrong Sr., described Corny's appearance as that of a naked man with a curl on his forehead and skin like a clothes horse. He was mischievous when visitors brought gifts of fruits and vegetables. The gifts would often be found hanging from the ceiling like Christmas decorations. He wasn't above stealing and hiding the silverware, although he had no use for it himself. He could also be just plain abusive, a bespectacled uncle who tried to make Corny speak to him by banging on his coal cellar, would forevermore be greeted with a croaky four eyes whenever he entered the room. Much like the alleged spirit of James Joyce earlier, Corny was cagey about where his soul resided. The great God would not permit me to tell you, he said. I was a bad man, and I died the death in this house. But Corny's spirit wasn't tied to the house. He had a daughter elsewhere in Dublin, presumably a ghost herself, and would often announce that he was going to visit her and not be heard from for several days. In fact, on one occasion... Corny told the family he would be entertaining himself that night and advised them to get anything they needed from the kitchen before bedtime. That night, five or six separate voices were heard coming from the kitchen and the family woke to find it covered in sooty handprints. When at last the time came for the Armstrongs to sell the place, Corny, who had presumably grown used to them, refused to cooperate. He frightened away all prospective buyers with his antics until, one afternoon, Mrs. Armstrong sat down by the coal cellar to appeal to his better nature. 
Corny, she said. Please be quiet next time. Please don't cause harm to people who have never caused harm to you. There was a long silence. When Corny's voice came again, it was quieter, softer than usual. Mrs. Armstrong, he said, you have my promise. And you'll be all right now, for I see a lady in black coming up the street. And she will buy the house. And, sure enough, so it's told. Within half an hour, a wealthy widow arrived to purchase the house. Before they left, Corney promised the family that he would not follow them to their new home. But, nor would he leave his familiar abode. If they ever throw down this house, he said, I will haunt the stones. According to the authors, the house was listed as vacant at the time of writing in 1914, except, of course, for that sole permanent resident. And well, since we don't know where the house stood, he could be anywhere, couldn't he? Holding his tongue, maybe. For now. I do hope you enjoyed this trip through the ghost stories of Dublin. There were plenty more inscribed within its ancient walls, and I hope to share some of them with you in the future. Until the next time, have a happy and peaceful and untroubled Halloween. And if you do happen to be in Dublin, and if you do happen to hear a raspy voice drifting across the cobblestones or down an alleyway, well, you know what to do. Good night.